Any other singles want to move up closer? <laughs> All right, let me open uh, again with prayer. Heavenly Father, we come again before you uh, humbly seeking to receive from your hand what you would give us today. Um, We thank you for your word and its instruction and how you in your love and condescension have uh, spoken to each and every member of your church. Um, You've spoken to the men, you've spoken to the women, you've spoken to the married couples and those seeking to be married. You've spoken to singles and to children, and we thank you, Lord God, uh, that you have revealed yourself and your will to all of your people. May we, uh, may we hear again now that word and receive it into our hearts, apply it to our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> all right, uh, singleness and productivity. Let me start with a couple of passages this time. Because I might not come back to uh, quoting them directly. Luke 17, verses 26 through 30. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Um, go over to 1 Corinthians 7, 6-9 as well. And then we'll look at verses 17 through 40 as well in this chapter. 1 Corinthians 7, 6 through 9. Now as a concession, not as a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each one has his own gift from God one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. In the beginning in verse 17, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he, for he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. 
I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good, good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and if, he, if it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry, it is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, And he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. All right, so singleness and productivity. We are a called-out people. We are set apart unto God. We are identified with God, uh, with Christ in his death to this world, in his his resurrection life, age-to-come life. We live by the spirit of the living God, not by the spirit of this present age. All of this means that Christians are not supposed to take their cues from the culture around us, but to walk in this world, depending upon every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This point needs to be strongly emphasized when we consider the ways of thinking concerning marriage and singleness and the the culture's values that are ascribed to each one of those, and particularly to the latter, to singleness. Listening to the world, being single is either the best or the worst thing that there is. It is the best thing, according to the world, because it is that age, that period of life, where self-discovery and personal liberty can be pursued and enjoyed to the fullest. Unencumbered by responsibilities related to marriage, one can live life to the full, doing whatever seems right in your own eyes. It's fantastic. It's the worst thing in the world because unless you have that significant other, you are looked down upon as a failure, as someone who is obviously undesired, and you may feel 
and are told that you should feel unfulfilled. Your single life is like a vacuum that both nature and society abhors. And they're constantly seeking to fill it. When are you going to get married? When are you going to get married? Well, the coming of the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ puts both marriage and singleness in perspective. Indeed, it gives to them both their true meaning and shines upon them with the glory of God's own face. We are not left to define ourselves, not left to find our identity as those who are singled or as those who are married, as the culture understands these things. Thank the Lord. Rather, we humbly receive as a gift from God a heavenly identity, heavenly calling and meaning in Christ. It's what we've been talking about. Now, the eschatology of singleness and marriage. Somebody already said, I, I'm really interested in what you're going to say about the eschatology of singleness. Well, it's not that hard. Over against the Latter-day Saints and their concept of celestial marriage, and over against Islam and their paradisical ideas of marriage, the Son of God was very clear about the temporary, this-age-only nature of marriage. He told us, when the Sadducees came and they posed that, that brain-teaser of a question they thought they had about the, the woman who was married to several men, and in the resurrection, whose, whose husband will, or whose wife will she be? And Jesus says, you don't know what you're talking about. You have no idea what Scripture teaches, do you? There is no marriage in heaven, he said. There is no marriage in the age to come. There is no marriage in the resurrection, the consummation. This is to say, you don't come into heaven married, and you won't be getting married in heaven. This reality, this eschatology, is grounded in the fact that in heaven, everything that human marriage was designed to image on earth has finally come to its perfect expression, its eternal expression, its consummate expression in the resurrection. It is the consummation of the bond of, between God and his covenant people, between Christ and his church, is so glorious and that consummation takes place when the Lord, the bridegroom, returns and receives his, his resurrected bride to himself, glorified to enjoy him and he, her, forever. That union and communion with God, perfected in the Spirit. Everything else that was leading up to that or pointing to that or imaging that just fades out once that reality finally dawns in all of its glory. These human bonds that we enjoy in this world, marital bonds, as important and as beautiful and as meaningful as they are, they don't continue in the age to come. But they do find their ultimate meaning and purpose not in themselves. They didn't exist for themselves, but in the plan of, 
of God, his plan of salvation, his covenant of grace, they find their perfection in, a, in that which we will enjoy in heaven. The earthly things serve the heavenly things. Man was created for God. So that being the case, when the perfect comes, the shadows, the types, the earthly illustrations, they become obsolete. They give way. They decrease so that Christ and his kingdom might increase. Remember what I uh, said the, last night about the true nature of our Christian home. See, only in the end, in the resurrection, at the coming again of our Lord and Savior, will we finally and consummately be home and be with our family in that place that God has prepared, that perfect family and that perfected place in glory. But that heavenly reality, the communion of the saints, is already ours by faith. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, Hebrews 11.1. 1. The, the very essence of our faith now is that it, it reaches out and receives Jesus Christ even now. Think of the Lord's Supper. In receiving Jesus Christ, it receives every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Him. All of the benefits of salvation, including Regeneration, justification, sanctification, adoption, communion of the saints, the whole list. In other words, faith in Christ means that we have already begun to enjoy and live out of heaven. Even as we hope for the consummation, we can rightly say that by faith we have already begun to enjoy heavenly life. Yes, you're familiar with some discussions of eschatology. I'm talking about what has been referred to as the already and the not yet. This is what our faith grasps. Faith puts us in touch with heavenly things now. Faith enables us to enjoy and receive heavenly things now. Even as we wait, there's still a not yet. It's not consummate. It's not perfected. But faith lays hold of it now. Now, understanding that eschatology, that, that framework, will, put, will help us put into a, a better context, put us into a better position to understand Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 7. What does Paul say again in 1 Corinthians 7, 27 and 28? Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. And then at the end, First uh, Corinthians 7, 38, So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marrying will do even better. Does that shock you at all? Does that sound surprising at all? I mean, have you read it so many times that it's just kind of, yeah, but you haven't really taken it in? Paul just said it's better not to get married. It's better. The apostle said it's better not to get married. Now let me just ask you guys this, especially you singles. How often do you hear that message in the church? How often do you hear the message? You know, it's better, guys, not to get married. I'm guessing probably not too often. 
And how often is that the message that you're hearing from your parents or your grandparents? Not, when are you going to get married or have you met someone yet? But, you know, it, just remember, it's better not to get married. How often do you hear that? Now, if we reflect honestly upon it, as a church or as parents and as grandparents, the impression that we often give singles is that they are in some kind of a holding pattern. They haven't quite launched yet. They're, they're in a staging ground. They're in like relational limbo. They haven't yet found their mate and gotten married. And so they're not quite f fulfilled. Now I'll have some more to say about that in a minute. But listen to what Paul said. The foundations, according to Paul, for why it is better not to marry is far removed from the, uh, the, the worldviews and values that culture, uh, the cultures around us have to say or give to the idea of singleness and marriage. When Paul's talking about it's better not to marry, understand it has nothing to do with humanism or hedonism. You know, sow your wild oats. It has nothing to do with that. It has nothing to do with you can be more focused and more successful in a worldly sense. It has nothing to do with, you know what, you should just be more in love with yourself. Nothing to do with, I don't need a spouse, I can marry myself, which they're doing nowadays. They have ceremonies for that. Do you? Yes. I sure do. Like a schizo. It has everything to do with living in the light of the imminence of the eschaton. It has everything to do with living in the light of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. It has everything to do, singleness, according to Paul, why he says it's better. It has everything to do with your faith is enabling you to live now even more self-consciously out of the inheritance that is already yours in heaven. It has everything to do with running the race of faith less encumbered by the things of this age. It has everything to do with being personally more fully devoted to the Lord on earth now as you will be in heaven. There are those, and this is what Paul's getting at. This is what Jesus also spoke about. There are those in the church of Jesus Christ whose devotion to the Lord, whose faith is such that they are willing to set aside the joys and the responsibilities of marriage so that they can more purposefully and undividedly focus on the kingdom of God. There are those in the church of Jesus Christ whose eyes of faith are so fixed on the age to come the heavenly realities out of which they already are living by grace, and whose hearts and minds are so attuned to the imminent coming of their Lord that they really would prove to be a terrible spouse. They just shouldn't be married. Paul, of course, was 
one of these individuals. God had plans for Paul. And those plans would make of Paul a very poor husband. I mean, what wife would want to follow Paul around in what he had to do? Though, as he himself would point out, though he had a right to take a Christian wife, Paul simply had too many cities to visit with the gospel, too many voyages across seas, too many perils to face, too many churches to visit, too much work to do for the establishment of the beloved bride of Christ to take a bride for himself in this world. Can you think of any other individuals like that? Let's see, we're all Orthodox Presbyterians, right? Can we think of anybody that might stand out in a significant way as a single? How about J. Gresham Machen? Another such individual would have made a terrible husband. There was simply too much work to be done for the kingdom of God. The church was... The church of Christ, as Machen saw it, was imperiled. It was being assailed on every side by forces that would destroy it. And there were too few that were standing up for its cause, the cause of Christ, the beloved bride of Christ. So Machen said, I'll do it. I'll stand up. And his love and commitment and devotion to this precluded his ever having the time or interest in taking a bride for himself. Is there anybody else we can think of in Scripture who was single and remained single for the sake of his entire life for the kingdom of heaven? This is one of those questions that kids automatically answer the right question. Jesus! <laughs> you, ever, you never get that one wrong. Jesus, you're right, you're right, of course. Well, he preeminently proves the point that we're making this morning about singleness and eschatology. He didn't get married on earth, that is to say. Again, 1 Corinthians 7 through 9, um, or 6 through 9. 1 Corinthians 7, 6 through 9. This is singleness not commanded, but preferred. Now as a concession, not a, as a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. It's important and even necessary, you know, having said all of what I just said, it's important and necessary to remind ourselves that um, this kind of faith that we see in men like Paul, uh, men like Machen, this kind of single-hearted devotion and commitment to the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the kind of single-hearted or single-focused and hearted commitment that eschews marriage, that kind is a gift from God. It's a gift. Paul wishes, as he says, I wish that everyone were like me. Kind of like Moses, I wish that everybody else were prophets. Paul wishes that everyone were like him, but he recognizes then implicitly that God hasn't given that gift to everyone. God hasn't given what 
Jesus talks about that gift of being a eunuch for the kingdom of heaven, being celibate for the kingdom of heaven. Paul says, but each has his own gift, one of one kind and one of another. And obviously, most of us don't have this gift. At least, not indefinitely. (laughs) I'll say more about that in a minute. But in God's wisdom, he gave gifts in a perfectly balanced way so that the whole body, the whole community of the saints, the whole church might be edified. God's covenant with believers and with their children was not canceled out in the first century by this universal gift giving of celibacy. The promise to you and to your children presupposes you can't give that gift to everybody. And Paul's letters presuppose that there will continue to be married Christians and covenant children in the household of God until Christ returns. Or I would have had nothing to say earlier this morning. This was also the teaching of Jesus. While speaking with his disciples about marriage and divorce, the disciples made an interesting observation. As Jesus was talking about divorce and marriage, the disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this statement or this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. That's Matthew 19, 10 through 12. Notice again, it's a gift only to those, only to whom, only those to whom it is given. Not everyone is given this gift. Not everyone is given the gift of remaining single for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone is called to serve in this way in the church. Called to serve the Lord in in such a close and intimate capacity that he or she will forego the closest and most intimate human relationships that earth has to offer. Marriage. They are a uniquely gifted people gifted by God to live before him in a way that is, as Paul says, it's less divided, less distracted by what would otherwise be the good and holy state of marriage. So that's an important qualifier to Paul's point in 1 Corinthians. Not everyone is called to this. And then D, the indispensable service of single Christians in and to the church. Again, think of what this is all building on last night. In this Christian home of ours, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 7, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And then 1 Corinthians 12, 11, and 12. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Just looking at the matter from a historical perspective, we can see the advantage that being single affords to the community not even thinking about the church at this point, just think out in the world, 
being single, the advantages that it can afford and give to the whole community. Think of people like Leonardo da Vinci. Single. Isaac Newton. Nikola Tesla. Florence Nightingale. Jane Austen. These prove the point that one can be highly creative, highly efficient, highly productive when one is single and have much to offer to the broader community precisely because of that. They're undivided, they're undistracted, and they can be extremely productive. Again, in our own circles, singles like J. Gresham Machen demonstrate how indispensable the service of singles in the service of Christ can be and is. We wouldn't be sitting here if it weren't for that gifted man. There would not be an OPC, providentially speaking, without a single named J. Gresham Machen. And there wouldn't be a church of Gentiles without the single who went by the name of Paul. Just thinking in terms of their own productivity, singles, as Paul teaches, are less anxious about the things of the world and as such are thereby more freed up to serve the Lord, to serve the church. The married man, Paul says, has divided interests. And he has to. He, he needs to have divided interests, as it were. He has not only to take care of himself and serve the Lord, but he also has to take care of the needs of his wife and help her serve the Lord. Likewise, the wife has divided interests. She has to think not only about herself, but how she can please her husband, Paul says. Well, singles then have this gift. It's a gift of self-discipline that enables them to put aside those kinds of desires so that for the rest of us, that, well, desires that for the rest of us lead, uh, rise to the level of need, they're able to put those aside and more fully devote themselves to God. And it's that self-discipline grounded in their passion for serving the Lord, that heavenly-mindedness, that kingdom of God focus, that make singles especially fruitful in the service of God and in the service of the church of Jesus Christ. Now, we're not talking about here about playing Xbox all day long or we're not talking about engaging in, in pointless online debates or busy bodying around here and there and everywhere. We're not even talking about having all the free time you want to read theology books to your heart's content, guys. We're talking about the service of the Lord, the service of the people of Christ, giving one's life in service to God in the form of serving those whom God loves and serves. Singles, enabled by the grace of God to exercise such self-discipline and to devote themselves so fully to the things of the Lord, are indispensable to the church not only for what they do for the church, but for what they are in themselves, what they have in this gift from God. These individuals, you singles who right now 
are single by God's providence, by God's design. You singles, you have this opportunity to share with us, the rest of us, something important. The rest of the church can look at you and see our own eschatological end. We can see where it is we're going, what we're heading to, what we're going to all have and be in glory. Because remember, in heaven, there is no marriage or being given in marriage. We see our own heavenly calling in you singles who are so devoted and single-mindedly pursuing the things of God, so undistracted with worldly cares that you're able to focus on God and on His church. The rest of us need to see that, need to be reminded, you know what, that is what it's all about at the end of the day. It's not about these other things. It's about that. Singles in Christ, whether called to a lifetime of singleness in devotion to God, or those who are single right now, not by necessity, but not necessarily called to perpetual singleness, all of these can teach us a thing or two about God himself being our chief end. About offering ourselves unto God as a living sacrifice. About Loving the Lord God with all of our hearts, minds, souls, and strength. You singles can help us with that. Don't diminish your, what you can give to the church of Jesus Christ in this regard. Now, E, finally, the disservice of the church at times toward singles. <clears throat> kind of hinted at this already in the beginning. You, know, you guys being counted as being in like limbo or like in a staging, a holding pattern. Well, we rightly object to the forced and false celibacy of Rome, an impossibly heavy burden placed upon far too many who did not have the gift for it, the result of which has been disastrous, the multiplication of all kinds of sexual sins. And we rightly object to destructive, unbiblical doctrines of men like those Paul warned Timothy about, doctrines that forbade marriage or counted it as a thing to be despised rather than honored and cherished. And we rightly object to the wicked trend in our society, in the world, of devaluing marriage and family, redefining the whole thing, scrambling it all up so that it doesn't make any sense at all. And we're rightly on guard, given the full assault on marriage and family from every side. But in our righteous indignation and in our godly desire to guard this institution that God himself created and hallowed, the church has often overcorrected and become unbiblical in another direction. We have at times turned marriage and family into an idol, an end in and of itself. The church is sometimes viewed as an institution established by God for the sake of marriage and family. The church exists to serve that more ultimate and meaningful and important institution we call marriage and family. 
That's to flip the truth upside down. Hopefully our first talk on last night already dispelled some of that. But singles who find themselves in churches that have reacted that way, that the pendulum has swung in an unbiblical direction on the other side, singles in those kinds of atmospheres are made to feel like second-class citizens in the church. They're not fully formed members yet. Think about it again and be honest, you know. Do we get more excited when a single announces that they met someone or when they came before the congregation and professed faith in Christ? Which one gets us more excited? Do we look at singles more in terms of who would be a good marital, ma- marital match for that one rather than in terms of what are the gifts that God has given to them for the benefit of us all? If they're viewed singles as having gifts at all sometimes, those gifts, especially if they're young women in the church, are usually thought of in terms of how they can serve the families of the church, right? Right? Young ladies are sometimes made to feel like their only gift in the church is babysitting. That's it. That's why you're here. And young men, apparently, also, the only gift they have is the gift of helping load and unload moving trucks of member families or potential member families. It's that focus on the family atmosphere that we need to rethink and sometimes repent of in the churches. We have to remind ourselves, where's our eschatology in all of this? Where's our biblical doctrine of the church? And what are we implicitly saying to single people in the pews? Do we see them? I mean, do we see them? Or do we merely see potential marriage candidates? Do we see their gifts and the service that they are uniquely able to provide to the church? How each one of them can point us to heaven? Or do we look past them to the really important married members of the church? Rather than this grave disservice, let those of us who are married be open to how single Christians in our midst are gifts of God given to help us all reorient our minds, our faith, our hope, so that we might say with them, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, quickly come. Amen. Thank you.